they would actually call back from time to time at the most random hour, sometimes in the middle of the night, sometimes it was the middle of the day, it was a school maybe. And I don't know, my grandma would pick up the phone and start yelling at them in Italian. I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. On this week's episode, we welcome our first international guest, Marco Caneva, who joins us from Italy. After over a decade of working for Goldman Sachs in their London, Paris and Milan offices, he went on to serve as the chief investment officer for a multi-billion dollar family office in Italy. He's now serving as a mergers and acquisitions consultant to American and UK private equity firms looking to do business in Italy and vice versa, helping Italian firms find financing with American or UK firms. He's also on the board of a few publicly traded Italian companies. And before all of this, well, the guy was a chemical engineer. And before that, believe it or not, he was possibly Italy's number one teenage metal fan. Ciao, Marco. <laughs> Ciao, Nick. <laughs> that was a great intro. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I hope it was all true. <laughs> I, yes, I would, I would say so, yeah. <laughs> That's as accurate as it well, comes. Yeah, well, welcome. Earlier, as I mentioned, you're our first guest from overseas. How is Italy right now? The country was so clearly hurt by the pandemic in the early days. And over here in the States, we watched very closely. How are things now? Clearly a million times better, but simply because last year was horrific. I think during the lockdown, I don't think people in the U.S. can fully appreciate how tough of a lockdown that was. I mean, we were not really allowed to leave our own homes, not just to pop out, get some food or drugs. And uh, I mean, we would have like this 6.30 p.m. where the country was glued in front of the TV to wait for the new cases and death reports. And that went on for for about two months. Now, I think with vaccination rates being where they are, and I guess everybody has learned to sort of cohabit with this virus, uh, things are thinking, looking a little bit brighter. We're all a little concerned about the current Delta variant, but looking at the numbers, especially when it comes to you know ICUs and that's, I think we're a little bit more optimistic. Where were you when this all started to unfold in the spring of 2020? Believe it or not, I had just left Milan, went back to Como. My parents just moved there literally, I think, two weeks before the lockdown. And they're not exactly spring chickens anymore. So it was uh, home uh, on the lake. It was one of the, I think, weirdest, most eerie experiences of my life, watching just everything go to dead quiet from being, you know, the buzzy tourist destination that Lake Como usually is. Let's talk about the economy in Italy, which was clearly stagnant for a little while before the, the pandemic with red yeah. tape and bureaucracy. Uh, but there is some thought that a new COVID relief bill might help revitalize it. Where do you think uh, Italy is at right now economically and what the future might look like on that front? Red tape by now is synonymous almost with uh, my beloved home country. I think we got stuck um, being the sick man of Europe for so long. And being hit by the pandemic, I thought that actually that could be the last straw that broke Italy's back. Instead, I have to say that the way kind of the country came together and fought through, especially the darkest months, I think gave everyone a little bit of hope. I also think we needed some 
charismatic leader. And I'm not here to dispute Mario Draghi's incredible CV and ability, but I also think that his uh, charisma is helping a lot right now. His credibility with the EU, uh, the fact that he's done it for so long at different levels with different organizations and has the credibility to negotiate with the EU, with other international parties, but also push some of the reforms that Italy has been you know, dying for for decades. For the first time in a while, it, it gives me a little bit of hope. I think winning the Euro Cup also gave me hope and maybe a little happy. <laughs> so may, maybe I'm just, but I'm not the only one who's looking at it through those rose-tinted glasses. There was an article today, the FT, that started with, you know, the rebirth of Italy and mentioned the fact that they won the Euro Cup. So <laughs> I guess that works. You, you, you know you're talking to an Englishman here. Right? I'm sorry, so just... I know. <laughs> You, you guys also did pretty good at the Olympics as well. So there's definitely at least a, a sports revival and the good feelings that that brings. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, clearly you guys still, um, you know, kicked all of the other European countries, butts in the Olympics, I'm endlessly amazed at how countries of similar size can have such diverse results. I think the UK has been incredible again at these Olympics, but I think like winning in track and field, which is not exactly a discipline that Italy has ever excelled at, was something that made us all feel a little bit special. And I think it was a great, great, great summer for us. It's good to have a little bit of pride. Marco, last week we had your friend on uh, the macroeconomist, Elle Hawkins, uh, on our podcast, and she was telling us about you. She introduced us to you, and that's that's why we're talking today. And she also said that you had, uh, when you were younger, befriended several big metal bands as a, a diehard young fan in Italy. Uh, so we knew we had to have you on the show. But why don't we just dive straight into the questions I have here, and maybe you could tell us about your first musical memory. I was a little kid, I think, and I remember playing the Beatles' Hard Day's Night single on my mom's horrific and ancient 45 RPM turntable. I think that's the first time I actually felt rock and roll pul pulsing through my veins. And the old turntables, of course, and anybody un under 40 probably doesn't even know, know what they were, but were you allowed to play on the, the parents' turntable, or was that something you had to earn when you got a little older? No, I actually took over because my parents, they were never really music people. So this thing was kind of forgotten at the bottom of one of our closets. And I sort of fished it out, started playing with it and it became mine pretty quickly. What was the first music you bought with your own money? Ooh, I think it was either The Dark Side of the Moon or Dire Straits Alchemy. I cannot really remember which one I picked first. But I do remember becoming obsessed with both Pink Floyd and Mark Knopfler, who I still consider probably the greatest guitarist alive. And that was until I discovered hard rock. So, Marco, as I mentioned, we were talking to your friend Al Hawkins uh, the other day, and, and she was saying something about when you were younger, you used to track down bands and musicians and, and call them. Tell us a little bit about that. You, you oh, yes. Yeah stalker or something right <laughs> no 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 at all. well or maybe they felt that way i don't know <laughs> uh, you know i was so heavily um, involved uh, from afar or in love with the la metal scene that through ads in the papers i started writing and calling hotlines of bands that hadn't even been signed yet in order to get their demos before they became famous 
Now, clearly, I would call the hotline in LA. You're calling like teenage musicians in California. They have no idea what time zones are. So they would actually call back most of the time. They would definitely arrive back, but also call back from time to time at the most random hours. Sometimes it was in the middle of the night. Sometimes it was the middle of the day. It was a school, maybe. And I don't know, my grandma would pick up the phone and start yelling at them in Italian, uh, which obviously, you know, works really well with the California uh, musicians. All you need to do is yell at them in a different <laughs> language so we'll understand everything. Yeah. That's how actually I stayed friends with these guys to the point where I moved to LA for my MBA. I actually met them again over the years and with some of them are still in touch via social media. A- anybody that we would know? I don't think so. They actually never became really famous other than, I mean, meeting them and, you know, in, you know, in the clubs, not really. These are all, these unfortunately are the ones that didn't make it. Got it. What was the first concert that you went to without adult supervision? (laughs) Okay. Believe it or not, it was Spandau Ballet. That's okay. I had a massive crush on this girl and I would have probably gone to a four hour ballet performance for her. The concerts were fun, actually. How old were you? 15. Right. Between 14 and 15, yeah. Tell us about that feeling of being in front of live music for the first time. You know, it's something that I still treasure today. I still get the same reaction today. There's nothing, I think, that gives me at least the same feeling of being alive than a concert when you you feel the bass, you feel the drums, you feel the guitar. And it doesn't matter if it's not perfect, if it's not squeaky clean, but the way it moves you in so many different ways, it what brings me back to music every single day. I miss concerts so much. Well, I was going to say, this isn't a normal question, but seeing as we've just been talking about how everything shut down, um, what was your last concert? I think my last concert was probably Queen with, with Lambert live in Milan. So Jesus was like, what, four years ago? Right, right. Yeah, three right, and right. a half. And then, you know, I, I had actually a few tickets uh, purchased for concerts in Milan and Dublin. I was hoping to attend that then got canceled. And so I hope I hope we can make up for it. What is the live music scene like uh, in, in Italy? Is it centered on uh, the, the big cities? Tell us a little bit about yeah. if I was to, you know, rock up and hang out in uh, in Milan for, for a couple of months. What's the live scene like? Pre-COVID, it, obviously. Yeah, obviously. So there is clearly you have all the, the major acts and bands come th- that come through Italy usually just do one stop in Milan, sometimes maybe two if they add Rome. Um, you have the occasional festivals that are organized in arenas in either Verona or Bologna or Turin. But I think that I, I would definitely say the most vibrant scene is around Milan and the smaller clubs. There's actually a lot of hip hop, as you can imagine, with a lot of Italian flair. And there is quite a bit of old school rock and roll played in uh, smaller venues. So more like 70s influenced kind of bands that still play around a lot. I wonder how it's going to look like once we actually emerge from this. You guys are big on festivals as well, right? Big time. Yes. Yes. That is the way to bring everybody together. Yeah. I had the very good fortune three years ago to, to be in Italy and I was working with Quincy Jones, interviewing him as a part of a concert series that he was doing. And we went to the Umbria 
a jazz festival in, in Perugia where he performed with an orchestra and I got to interview him on stage with a, a translator, which was really interesting because it was a Scottish guy who speaks Italian who was who was doing the translation. Yeah. But those kind of events are just they, they just feel like family events. They really do. They really do. And I love the fact that they tend to be, especially in the summer, which is going to sound like a contradiction to what I was saying before, but in the summer, you have a lot of like the smaller kind of tourist places that clearly are a lot busier than are normally during the year. And those tend to have every year some sort of special event that turns into a festival. And it might be some sort of like Italian folk music festival clearly nothing as big as the Umbra Jazz Festival, but you have a lot of those with like blues or even punk. And they're all in either beach towns or on the Alps where the places that one wouldn't ever put on the map, but you know, but Italy has a long history of music across genres. So I, I guess I shouldn't even be surprised. Yeah, it's very eclectic for sure. What do you listen to when you want to dance? Deep Dark House is probably what takes me back to my old clubbing days in London and Ibiza. But mostly, if I have to be honest, I tend to headbang by myself listening to 80s thrash, such as early Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, Anthrax, the big four. Yeah, so, as so long as no one's around to watch. So we're more likely to find you headbanging somewhere rather than cutting a rug, as they say, and dancing. I would say so. Yes. Do you have any loss of hearing from that? And, and I'm, I'm not joking. I'm, I'm being serious. No, no. It's a, and it's a fair question. Actually, I thankfully, um, from my early days, when I started going to uh, metal concerts, I actually always either had makeshift earplugs that we used just by tearing up a Kleenex or something. Yeah. Or then I started actually really bringing them with me because it would have been, I think, with after, years after year, it would have really hurt my ear, which is not that good to start with. I, I have a feeling that I'm probably a little bit older than you. And I will tell you that when I was 16, 17, and I would go to heavy metal concerts in Birmingham, in the Midlands, in, in the UK, yeah. where I grew up and where heavy metal pretty much was invented, as you know, oh, yeah, we would stand in front of these massive speaker stacks and just, you know, shake our heads, thrash our heads, headbang or whatever, with no clue about any hearing loss or whatever. I think people are a little more careful about it now. I don't think I put earplugs in, in until I was in my 30s or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would say that uh, you read nowadays how many of those actually artists lost or partially lost their hearing because of yeah. it. We go back to the 80s where everyone's trying to be the loudest band in the world. And as you said, with all of us like banging our heads in front of their martial stacks, that was a little crazy. Yeah, pardon? I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> what about, I'm sorry. What about when you're feeling sad or perhaps a little melancholy? What do you listen to then? Well, I would say the first three albums by the script, I think are one long heartbreak story. I think Danny the singer must have been a pain of a boyfriend, right? Considering how many girls broke up with him, according to the songs. <laughs> but Otherwise, I, I actually tend to, as you're saying, it's more like a melancholic feeling. I tend to go back to like 70s rock, the Stones, Pink Floyd, the Who, old Aerosmith, like, you know, pre, pre big fame. Those are my go to when I feel a little sad. Now, I, I, I want to move on to the next couple of questions, but I want to stay with the metal thing for a minute, because you mentioned some bands, obviously. What is it? about that music? What got you when you were a kid? And what is it that still makes you want to, you know, 
Headbang. It's the energy. There is something about the jolt of energy that I get from a heavy metal riff and some of the drumming that just can keep me going forever. It's just, it's better than drinking coffee in terms of just waking me up and getting me going. And it still is. And I still have the same sort of desire to find new acts than I did when I was 13 or 14. Back then, I would just, you know, wait for the new issue of Kerrang! or Metal Forces to find out who was going to release the next big album. Now you can find it either on Twitter or on the internet in general, but I still have the same kind of first thirst for the, something new. And I just love putting in the time to actually find the new act that I really dig it. Well, that brings me to my next question. Thanks for the segue. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? I would say my favorite right now, there are a couple of uh, bands that are heavily influenced by your fellow countrymen and I would say heavy metal founders, i.e. Black Sabbath, i.e. a bit of, right? It would be on the doom end of the metal spectrum. One is called Wheel. They're from Germany. They released one album this year. I think it's fantastic. The other one is a band from Poland called Grieving. Uh, both very, very heavily influenced by Sabbath. And I think they don't necessarily have that, you know, famous heavy metal growl. They're much more on the soft doom end of the spectrum. And I keep listening to them. And the more I spend them, the more I enjoy them. It's interesting. You know, if you just take a casual glance at uh, heavy metal in Europe, uh, it would seem, and this is a painting of broad strokes here, that if you look at Germany and then head north, through Scandinavia, those seem to be the countries that have really been pushing the new metal, I guess. Is that fair to say? Yeah, indeed, indeed. I think Germany actually never gave up on it, even during the dark days in the 2000s, right after, you know, kind of grunge killed the scene. Germany never gave up, neither did Sweden. And I think they were part of the revival. Now you actually see most of the bands are definitely out of that area of the world. Do you have a favorite band or artist in, in any genre that you love, but perhaps they never got the big break they deserved? Somebody that you felt should have gotten uh, a little more success than they have? Well, I mentioned how much I, I enjoy EDM or at least the dark side of EDM. I think Dirty South is probably the most underrated DJ out there. When it comes to hip hop, I think Sean uh, Price is the most forgotten great rapper. But then there's a gazillion bands out that vilified 80s glam metal scene that I wish made it out of California and achieved, you know, real rock star status. Uh, Because I think they were a lot better than Warrant and Poison, which I love. Um, And they they probably got one album out and then Nirvana happened and, and sort of never really got the big break. I I remember talking to a a musician, John McRae from the band Cake many years ago, and he described coming up in the 90s and trying to compete with grunge, as as we know that format was given a name, and he described it as oral deforestation that just destroyed everything in its its wake. Absolutely. Look, Sunset Boulevard went from becoming, from being the party capital of the universe to this deserted island. The club just emptied out between 
I would say 91 and 93, it went from one sold out show to the next to 15 people at the Roxy on a Friday night. It was just heartbreaking. Maybe it was the sort of just like forest fires from time to time. They're, they're needed to rejuvenate, but damn, that felt like one of the big California fires that we don't wish upon anybody, which is so sad. You know, there's a lot of sub-genres in, in every genre, really, but in metal in, in particular, I think. Is there a, any new sub-genre of, of metal that is coming up? Um, I don't know. I think I hear a lot more of uh, fusion between, uh, if you want, like funk or hip-hop and uh, and heavy metal. I think the last big breakthrough was what they called uh, new metal with the likes of Slipknot, uh, some deathcore. But to be honest with you, at this point, I think people are just trying to come up with labels just to say there's something new. I struggle to hear something that we haven't felt before. Doesn't mean that there are not good bands. Just, I, don't, I, it, I think it's tough to be groundbreaking after 40 plus years of hard rock and heavy metal. Do you go back to some of your favorite metal bands that have been around for 40 years? Do you go back to ACDC records? Do you go back to Black Sabbath records? Is there a particular artist at all from the, the beginning days of, of heavy metal that's, you know, always on your, I was going to say turntable, but, you know, on your iPhone? Oh, big time. I actually try and balance the new and the old and, you know, the sort of the uh, 2000, 2010s. I would say the old guard, probably the band I play the most is Judas Priest. I've always been a massive Judas Priest fan. I go back to early Motley Crue a lot. Um, I go back to early Metallica a lot. I kind of lost track of Metallica after load. I thought it got a little too bloated and and, and boring. Um, so I play a lot of the um, original gangsters, if you want, still a, a lot. Sabbath, probably from time to time, especially as a link to that, like, for instance, two, net, uh, two new bands that I mentioned before. I try and balance all the new, pre like, pretty much every day. Do you have uh, a band or an artist that you would call a guilty pleasure? Maybe you don't usually share who that is, but you're going to share with us now. Post Malone, without okay. a shadow of a doubt. Actually, yeah. I can listen to beer bongs or Hollywood's Bleeding on repeat. I I absolutely love them. And we're pretty much at the end of the conversation. And I always like to wrap up after having a, a chat with somebody for half an hour with, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling great. This was so much fun. I, I mean, talking music, I could this for hours. <laughs> I love it. And I, I can't thank you enough for having me, Nick. No, we're really grateful. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, our guest this week is Marco Caneva, and uh, he joins us from Italy, our first international guest on the Sand of Success. Uh, grazie, Marco. Prego. It's been a pleasure, Nick. Yeah, man. Really nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klain. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.